Hi everyone, I'm Ali Bryan, I am the Ferret's fact-checking lead. And I'm Paul Dobson, a journalist at the Ferret. And we are the co-hosts of the Ferret's brand new misinformation podcast, For Facts Sake. You may remember last year we hosted the FFS show, but we've changed the name and we've got some brand new features and content for you uh, in this new podcast. So Paul, what is the difference and what's coming up? So we're going to have new interviews with people monitoring the deepest reaches of the internet for the big Mm. topics in misinformation. And we'll be discussing some of the biggest issues in Scottish and UK politics each week. And I'll also be quizzing Ali on a wide range of myths we find all over the internet in a segment we're tentatively calling Paul's Curiosity Corner. Excellent. Looking forward specifically to Paul's Curiosity Corner. Um, That name is still available to be changed. So if anybody has any other suggestions for names that don't sound so much like a shop in a magical alleyway, that would be very useful. Yeah, so Ali, do you want to tell us what's coming up this week on For Fact's Sake? This week, we will be discussing Andrew Tate, the anti-feminist influencer who came from nothing last year to become one of the most popular influencers with billions of views on his videos. He has run into some serious legal trouble over the last month or so. So we have an interview with Dr. Robert Lawson, who is an associate professor in social linguistics at Birmingham City University. He chatted to us about how Andrew Tate gained all his followers, what he sort of provides for the young men who have become this incredibly loyal following for him, what this says about how the internet works and how male role models are sort of being portrayed online. Cool. And in Paul's Curiosity Corner, we'll be looking at some slightly odd videos posted by the former detective's assistant, Lawrence Fox, about defibrillators around the UK. Anybody who's been following the news in Scotland in recent weeks and days will have seen the UK government's intervention uh, on the Scottish Gender Recognition Reform Bill. So we'll be explaining a little bit about how that came about and the uh, infamous Section 35. So a lot to pack in, a lot to look forward to. I think we're going to start with Robert Lawson and Andrew Tate. My name's Robert Lawson. I'm an Associate Professor in Social Linguistics at Birmingham City University. And as part of my research, I'm interested in language and masculinities, particularly how men use language in different media contexts. We're here specifically today to talk about Andrew Tate. And this is a name most of our listeners will be familiar with. Uh, Some may not be, but they may be familiar with his name, but not know particularly much about him as a person or how he came to prominence. So could you just sort of sum up him for people who may have heard of him, but may not know much about him? Andrew Tate's kind of initial rise to fame was uh, as a kickboxer up until uh, about 2016 where he appeared on the UK version of uh, Big Brother and he was on the show for a couple of weeks and then he got kicked off the show. There had been a video that had been uh, released showing what seemed to be uh, some form of sexual or domestic violence with uh, another woman uh, on uh, on the uh, on the camera clip, um, and from there the producers decided to release Andrew from the from the house uh, because of because of the clip. Tate contests that he says that the the clip was consensual. After that, he becomes uh, a, a sort of social media influencer and personality 
he started up a, an online teaching and learning platform called Hustlers University. He made a, a, effectively a, a massive following on, on TikTok, on Instagram, um, on YouTube, on Twitter. And in 2022, uh, in 2022, he was banned from all of those platforms, uh, basically for promoting really sexist, misogynistic uh, content, really troubling views about women, about dating, about relationships, about women's position and role within a relationship, um, about domestic violence, coercive control. Twitter is, I think, the only one that's reinstated him, and that was yeah. after the Elon Musk kind of reinstated him. He became really well known within the manosphere as a as a kind of voice for men, advocating for men, uh, a sense of sort of self improvement for men, advocating that they go to the gym, that they get fit, that they take responsibility for their actions. Um, that they earn more money and so on. And so in the process of doing so, I think he was really advocating this kind of alpha male mindset. And he's a you know, very big proponent of you know, alpha male qualities, alpha male leadership, alpha male yeah. characteristics. Um, and then, yeah, at the end of 2022, he was arrested after a spat with Greta Thunberg. Uh, and then, yeah, it all kicked off. He was arrested by the Romania authorities on the basis of... Uh, sexual abuse and coercive control of a series, a, a group of young women, and, and that at the moment is what uh, Tate and his brother Tristan um, are being investigated for. And Robert, you mentioned a term there, the manosphere. Can you mm. explain that a wee bit further for our listeners? So the manosphere is a kind of very loose-knit assemblage of predominantly male-authored uh, outputs on Twitter, on Reddit, on Discord, 4chan, uh, different forums and websites that all ostensibly deal with a variety of, of men's issues. That could be things like physical fitness, mental health, um, dating, relationships, marriage, uh, as well as things like child custody um, rights following divorce. It could be setting up your own business. It could be um, how to, you know, how to get a girlfriend, how to get a partner, so dating strategies, that kind of thing. Mm. And so ostensibly it acts as a kind of support system uh, for, for men in a variety of different uh, contexts. But running through the manosphere, what we also see is a really virulent strain of anti-feminist and anti-women sentiment as well. Uh, usually women are painted as as villains as the reason why the world is you know in such a state that it is um and yeah really quite explicit sexually violent in some cases misogyny uh, and sexism i think what's really interesting about andrew tate is that he cuts right across a lot of the audiences yeah. in the manosphere he isn't an incel uh, at least in the kind of classical definition of of the term um he isn't uh men's rights activist as, as far as I can see. He is a, a pickup artist. And but I think his message appeals to a lot of different elements of the manosphere and there's bits yeah. that different audiences in the manosphere kind of latch on to and, and take on board. In terms of his actual fame, this level of fame, this has only come about in the last year or so. I was interested you mentioned he's been banned from these social media platforms. But if you go on, I don't know, YouTube Shorts or Instagram Reels, or these are the um, short form video things on these platforms, within five, 10 videos, you'll get an Andrew Tate video and it won't be uploaded by him. 
Yeah. It'll be uploaded by one of these channels that's like about making money or about improve alpha males, that, that kind of part of that sort of manosphere like ecosystem is promoting it. Yeah. So I'm interested how he managed to go from almost in terms of public profile, almost nothing to this mm. headline news within such a short space of time. So I think part of it is that his content is provocative. I think it, his content, uh, you know, garners outrage um, on one side of the political uh, divide and garners, you know, positive praise on the on the other side. Um, and I think because of that, people engage with it regardless of whether they agree or disagree with it. So I don't I agree pretty much with any of, of Tate's views, but I've had to watch his, you know, interviews, I've had to watch his videos and podcasts and the YouTube shorts, um, uh, you know, messages on, on Twitter, look at the comments, you know, so that's what engagement advertisers don't discriminate on whether you agree with the material that you're watching or disagree with the material that you're watching. It's simply you're, you're watching it and so the advertisers get money. So I think part of it is, you know, part of the engagement is driven by the provocative nature of the points that he's, that he's making and the views that he's articulating i think the other part of it is the youtube you know just to take youtube as an example their algorithms i think they find ways of gaming those algorithms and you know there's been a lot of research that's that's looked at how youtube is part of this kind of pathway of exposing viewers to potentially more uh, extremist uh, content uh, mm. and sort of how that drives potential radicalization for for viewers as well and so those algorithms are arguably, you know, in the you know, with the wrong content or with with you know difficult content, um, really dangerous. So you might start to take your point about, you know, a video about how to start your own business, how to grow your own business, how to be an entrepreneur, that then leads you to another video that's with Tate, and because you've watched that, then all of a sudden algorithm will activate and it'll start suggesting more content by Tate or featuring Tate or something that one of his, you know, followers has uh, made. And obviously, you know, he's got, uh, an, I hate to, you know, call him an army, but he's, a, you know, a, quite a, an ardent following that promote and amplify his content as well, sharing it through hashtags, sharing it on places like Twitter, on Instagram, you know, and these have got massively huge user bases as, as well. And so, yeah, all of that taken together, I think you can see why, someone putting a message out at the right time at the right place, it just goes massive. So the current situation that he's in, in detention, charged with rape, people trafficking, organised crime offences, but he's got fans protesting in the street in some places. He's got people, a huge amount of followers on socials saying, A, that these charges are false or defending him in some way, despite like what in any in a normal situation if someone was held up, you know, quite often some of the people are held up as like these heroes. If this happens to them, it creates a downfall for them. It doesn't seem to be happening. Why do you think that is? Yeah. So, so I think that's a really interesting point. And, and I wonder if it's simply because of the nature of his offences. If you look at someone like Milo Yiannopoulos, who, you know, had a massive public profile at the same time, you know, was a big public speaking tour, was booked onto a big conservative conference in the States at a book, I think with Simon and Schuster that, you know, he had a quarter of a million dollar advance. And then there was a podcast that came out where he, you know, appeared to condone um, hebophilia. Uh, and that was the end of, 
Milo Yiannopoulos' career effectively and within a week, you know, it, that was it. It was over for him. Um, that doesn't seem to be the case with, with someone like Tate, who, you know, I think has a comparable profile, if not, if not larger. I don't know if it's because of the nature of the accusations against him that they're seen as less serious, perhaps, than something like, like hebophilia. Um, if it's because the accusations against him have not been proven yet, whether it's because people, like you say, still think that these are drummed up false, you know, allegations that, mm. are, that have been made simply to get him off the off the airwave. If it's because you know he's challenging the status quo, and so he needs to be, you know, quieting down. But you know, folk are saying that he's he's still out there, you know, fighting uh, for 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 men. He's fighting against the system. Um, so I, so I don't really know if it's some of that, all of that, on, on why he's still got that that following. Whether he'll be able to, you know, say due process needs to happen, the investigation mm-hmm. needs to be complete, you know, it all needs to go to court, it needs to go to trial, you know, we're, I think, a long way from getting a resolution to, yeah. to this story. But let's say, you know, he does get jailed, his brother gets jailed, what are the potential, you know, that could have a, you know, completely different effect that could, you know, amplify him even more. Um, and, and put him in the headlines even more and, you know, expose him to, you know, bigger audiences. Whether he'll still be able to, you know, put content out is a different story. Tate is just one man in a long entry, you know, a long line of men doing this, other men doing the same kind of thing. And so even if Tate is in prison, then even if it is for a really long time, my expectation is that there will be someone else who will come and fill that void and fill that vacuum. I think just to make a final point, because we've talked a lot about the mechanics of social media and how he's managed to sort of game the system to to gain all these followers, but he is also speaking to some insecurities that some young men have. So I I wonder if you could maybe explain a little bit more about the actual content of what he says and why that appeals to people. Yeah, so I think he he has a variety of content that he puts out. You know, he he talks about you know things like physical fitness, um, being responsible, starting your you know your own business, growing your brand. He talks about you know jet set lifestyle. He drives fast cars. He's got the big cigars. He's got the big houses, and so it's a very glamorous kind of lifestyle that that he that he markets and in a lot of ways you go on his Instagram account and there's all these, you know, supercars, Bugattis, Ferraris, Porsche, you know, so on and so forth. He's on private jets, he's, you know, zooming off here, there and everywhere. And so I think that elements of his lifestyle are really seductive. Um, He is very big on this kind of self-made man. You pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, you you make a life for, uh, for yourself. And so there's elements, I think, that for a you know a young man, 14, 15, 16, who is in any way a really vulnerable position, and you know, someone like Tate sells this really alluring sort of image of of masculinity, of of alpha control, of you know, having people at your beck and call all the time, of uh yeah, getting what you want, when you want, how you want, no questions, ask no challenges. And you know, I think that kind of image of, of power is is really seductive um for, for a lot of young men who, as I say, are I think at a really sort of vulnerable uh, time of their lives. So I think all of that kind of stuff 
acts potentially as a, as a gateway for some of the more insidious and, and problematic elements that, that he advocates. Okay, so Ali, you mentioned at the top that the big issue in Scottish politics over the last week or so has been the UK government's intervention on the Scottish government's gender recognition reform. So I wonder if you can quickly recap what a Section 35 order is and why it's being used to block gender recognition reform in Scotland. Yeah, I'll try and do it as quickly as possible. So Section 35 is something that you will have heard a lot if you've been following the news uh, in recent weeks. And it's actually part of the Scotland Act, which is the legislation which underpins devolution in Scotland. Um, It allows the UK government to intervene when a law is passed through the Scottish Parliament, but is yet to be given royal assent and become law. There's two specific sort of tests the UK government need to use in order to use a Section 35 to block a bit of legislation from Scotland. One of which is if it believes the the law will be incompatible with international obligations or compromise interests of defence or national security. And the other one, which is more relevant to this one, is when amendments are made to existing laws, which the UK government believes will have a negative impact on the operation of reserved UK-wide laws. So a Section 35 order allows the Secretary of State for Scotland, which is Alistair Jack, to use an order which stops the Scottish Parliament bill from getting royal assent. Okay. So that's basically what Alistair Jack's done to block the gender recognition reform bill. So there's been a lot of discussion about why Section 35 exists. So can you explain briefly who brought it in and has it been used before either in Scotland or in any of the other devolved nations? So the Section 35 hasn't been talked about a lot before uh, the last few weeks because it's never been used before. It was developed as devolution was being developed. So the Scotland Act 1998 is part of that. It was talked about before devolution happened, after Scotland voted for devolution. The UK government basically wanted a sort of safeguard to intervene when it felt laws made by the devolved government could have a serious impact on reserved matters. That's even if it was technically an area which was devolved to Scotland. Uh, that was sort of backed by Donald Dewar, who was then the Secretary of State of Scotland and later became the First Minister. This was criticised at the time by a number of different people, including Michael Ancrum MP, who called it the Governor General Clause or the Veto Clause, and predicted that it would lead to confrontation between the Scottish and UK governments. In one way, he's been proved correct, yeah. Wales and Northern Ireland also have similar things written to their legislation, which underpins the devolution of those countries, but it's never been used before. So that's why it's so controversial. So while we're on the topic of sections in the Scotland Act. There are other sections that give similar powers. So I think those are section 31 and 33. Can you explain those Mm. and what power they give the UK government? Yeah, so it's quite complex. Section 31 is all about scrutinising bills before they're introduced. So it's it's to check whether or not Scotland, the Scottish government has legislative competence. That means if it's within the powers of the Scottish government. It allows the presiding officer to put forward a view that it's not um, within the legislative power of the Scottish government, but it's not a veto power. It's meant to sort of inform the process of making that decision and when you're putting bills forward. Section 33, uh, similarly, um, allows the Advocate General, Lord Advocate or Attorney General, to refer a bill that they think is outside the legislative competence of the Parliament to a judicial committee. So... Why did the UK government choose to issue a Section 35 order rather than one of these others? 
Well, the section 35 is actually different to the section 31 and the section 33. The section 31 and the section 33 bills are about legislative competence. So whether or not Scotland has the power to legislate over an area. To use a Section 35 order, it's not necessarily about whether Scotland has the power to make laws, because Section 35 can be used even in areas where devolution allows Scotland to make laws in. It's about whether or not they have, quote, reasonable grounds to believe it would have an adverse effect on the operation of the law as it applies to reserve matters. So while Section 35 is a more drastic action in some ways, it's actually easier for them to use. You can use it in a slightly wider remit, but also it's, as you say, it's the nuclear option and it's a hugely controversial bit of legislation to use and has, as it causes this enormous backlash and has caused a somewhat sort of constitutional crisis. So that's why it doesn't get used often. Um, And they would consider it only to be like a a last resort option. Yeah, and I feel like we're going to be discussing this again before the end of the year. I would expect so, yeah. This is one to put a pin in because the conversation is by no means over. Okay, so we now enter the wild and wonderful world of Paul's Curiosity Corner. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask you a few questions about something I saw on Twitter last week, which was from the controversial social media influencer Lawrence Fox Mm -hmm. where he was taking videos of defibrillators across the UK with the caption move along nothing to see here Mm. we don't necessarily want to speculate but Fox has been known to spread COVID vaccine misinformation in the past yeah so what is the history of public defibrillators and is there any link to the vaccine yeah so this is a really bizarre bit of online misinformation or implied misinformation you could say by Lawrence Fox. This is part of a kind of wider link that's being made by people between uh, the COVID-19 vaccine and people having more cardiac arrest and heart attacks and uh, heart conditions that they allege has been caused by it. But public defibrillators and the widespread use of public defibrillators is not a COVID-19 related thing. Public defibrillators have become kind of increasingly common in the last decade or so, uh, because of good work by campaigners and also health experts, trying to increase the survival rate of cardiac arrests in the UK. Because most cardiac arrests that happen occur outside hospitals, and the time it takes someone to be treated and seen makes a huge difference in their survival chances. There's a campaign group called Community Heartbeat Trust, which is behind the idea of putting defibrillators in old disused phone boxes. Basically what happens is that, because not many people are using phone boxes so much, the BT are sort of selling them off to charities, local authorities for community benefit. Now thousands across the UK are fitted with defibrillators, which can be used by bystanders to help in a cardiac arrest situation. Okay, so it doesn't sound something sinister. Do we know if there have been more defibrillators installed in public spaces since the vaccine rollout? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, there's there's more defibrillators being installed in areas year on year on year. The UK government announced on just a few days ago, on January 20th, that public use defibrillators would be rolled out across all schools in England. Um, but it's not because of the COVID-19 vaccine, it's because of um, brilliant campaigning by a guy called Mark King, uh, who runs the Oliver King Foundation. He's been raising awareness of the need for defibrillators since he lost his son, age 12, to cardiac arrest while he was swimming at school in 2011. There's been a massive campaign that's now been taken on by the government and they're going to put one in every school. Scotland also has a strategy in place to increase the number of public defibrillators because they want to increase the rate of survival of cardiac arrest by 2026. 
And are there any estimates of how many lives are saved each year because of these public defibrillators? According to statistics, there are 60,000-ish cardiac arrests each year that take place out of hospital. And emergency services attempt to resuscitate about half of these cases. Under 10% is the survival rate, which is lower than in in a lot of other developed countries. But when a bystander uses a defibrillator on someone during a cardiac arrest, the chances of survival are significantly higher. And one review of studies found that um, in that case, when a bystander uses a defibrillator, 32% of cases uh, can survive rather than less than 10%. And is there any truth that the vaccine has impacted heart attack rates? So there have been rare cases of myocarditis, which is uh, inflammation of the heart muscle, which can lead to heart attacks, cardiac arrest. Um after the Moderna vaccine, and even more rarely after the Pfizer vaccine, these are incredibly rare. I mean, there's a small, you know, occasional cases. Not, we're not talking about huge amounts of people here. Um, research suggests that myocarditis is no more likely to be triggered by the COVID vaccine than any other vaccine, and that you're much more likely to get myocarditis from COVID nineteen itself than from the vaccine. There has been an increase of deaths that are linked to heart disease uh, since the pandemic began. British Heart Foundation research uh, said that COVID-19 initially in the early stages of the pandemic was likely a significant factor, but other factors have also come into play since then, particularly the pressures on health services. Latest figures show that average ambulance response times for serious life-threatening incidents such as cardiac arrest have risen, and also the maintenance of blood pressure has got worse during the COVID pandemic, which means that more people are having heart conditions, which again is going to lead to more heart attacks. that's all we've got time for on the first episode of for fact's sake thank you for listening we'll be coming at you every fortnight on wednesdays so keep an eye on your feed for that and where can people find us if they have ideas ali you can contact factcheck at the ferret.scott if you want to email us with any suggestions you can go to at ferret scott which is our twitter account search for the ferret on facebook or the ferret.scott on instagram And you can go to our community forum, community.theferret.scot. We'll be posting our ideas there and we'll be really grateful for any suggestions you have about people to interview, topics to talk about, and obviously new names for Paul's Curiosity Corner. Thanks for listening. Bye.